Our scripture lesson is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6, page 1850. All who are under the yoke of slavery could, should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they're brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. The word of the Lord. May we pray. Lord, bless the reading and the proclamation of your word that it may be clear, concise, compelling, answer questions, open questions. Help us, O Lord, that we may profit from your word. For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to the right to the letter of Paul to Philemon. And you will find this on page 1860 and 1861. <laughs> Odd numbers, considering all this. And notice what we read here uh, in verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. The first thing that we note here is that Paul regards himself as a prisoner. Why? Because he actually is a prisoner. He was serving time in prison. And we need to understand that first century Christianity was a persecuted religion and that people suffered for being Christians. And so he's in jail and he's with his friend Timothy. Oh, uh, and uh, he's writing to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and of the church that meets in your home. Now, this is an interesting statement. This is a letter to a person who was probably uh, of some wealth, and we know that because the house was big enough for the church to meet in. Remember that until after the time of the corruption of Christianity under Constantine I, following not only the Edict of Milan in 313, but the legalization of Christianity as the religion of the state, that is, the official religion of the Roman Empire, in 325. Prior to that, Christians did not have special buildings. That meant the money that they raised went to help poor people. And that's what uh, things really are, uh, why that's so important when we think about it. So Paul is writing to Philemon, and he, he gives him a greeting, and he goes through and talks about how his prayers for him have been answered. And then he goes down and he says in verse 8, Therefore, 
although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Now that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Did Paul have the authority to give orders? Yes. Did the apostles of Christ have authority to give orders? Yes. The New Testament documents are series of orders. This is what you must believe. This is what you must do. So Paul had the authority to give orders. And he said, I could give you an order. He said, but I want to do that. I want you, out of your love for me and for Jesus, to do what I'm making an appeal for you to do. And here we go. He says in verse 9, Yet I appeal to you on the basis of, uh, of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and he was younger than I am, and now as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, verse 10, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Isn't that an interesting thought? Have you ever thought that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bad it is, no matter how troubling it is, no matter how you may despise the discomfort, that you're there by divine appointment to have connections with other people. Here is the Apostle Paul. He's in chains. He's in prison. And I can tell you that Roman prisons were not nearly as comfortable as modern-day prisons uh, in many ways. And so here he is in chains, and instead of being grumbling and griping, why is this happening to me? He's looking for an opportunity because Paul saw himself as a slave. This is very important. Paul saw himself as a slave. He was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that over and over again. Uh, I like the way that the uh, New American Standard Bible words it, bond slave. Bond slave. He was not simply a servant, such as we might think of somebody who was hired help, who comes in to help clean up the house. He was a slave. He had given up his rights. He had given up his privileges. He had given up his comforts in order to be a slave, a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what happens. He says in verse 10 again, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Now, isn't this a really odd deal? Can you imagine if you're Onesimus and you end up in jail? And lo and behold, you meet a man who was a friend of the man that had owned you? Is that a weird coincidence? Never forget this, beloved. There are no coincidences in life. God has placed you wherever you are strategically so that you might serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is always an opportunity to be a slave of Christ, serving Christ by serving others. And that's what happens here. Just imagine, here's a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. He ran away from the rich man Philemon. And he ends up in prison and discovers as he's talking to this old man, younger than I am, uh, as he's talking to this old man, he discovers he knows the man I ran away from. Now immediately, Paul has a bit of a dilemma. What am I going to do? You know, under the Old Testament, when a slave ran away, it was forbidden by God's law 
for people to return that slave to his master. Did you know that? That's why in the compromise came out of the Missouri Compromise, there was such an outrage in the United States of America because this compelled people to return runaway slaves to their masters, which is utterly contrary to the written Word of God in the Old Testament. We're forbidden to do that. That's striking, isn't it? So the Missouri Compromise led eventually to the Civil War. People forced to disobey the law of God, the written word of God, and return runaway slaves. So what's Paul going to do? What would you do? This is an interesting question, isn't it? Here he has a man that he knows has run away from his master. And so what does he do? He's sending him back. Notice what he says, formerly, verse 11, he was useless to you. Now that's a play on words. Onesimus means useful. But he was a lazy, good-for-nothing slave. Now you've got to remember another thing about the Roman Empire. The majority of people who lived in the Roman Empire were slaves. It was a slave system. And it was a far better slave system than our slave system in this country ever was. It's amazing. But Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. And he says, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. So he's living up to his name. Why is he living up to his name? Because he's been born again. This is the thing we must never forget. Till the new birth takes place... We're all useless. And until the new birth takes place, all our efforts to please God and do good for others tend to backfire and create more trouble uh, than, than we had before. So he's born again, and he has become no longer useless, but useful. He has truly become Onesimus. And look at verse 12. I am sending him who is my very heart, Back to you. Now, he's very tender. He's come to love this young man. And he says in verse 13, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. Notice how he says it. While I'm in chains for the gospel. I could have sure used his help, but I'm sending him back. Now notice what he says. Verse 14, But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Now remember what Paul has been saying. He, he's saying to Philemon, Brother, I could have ordered you to do this. I could have written a letter and then sent it by somebody saying that I have met your former slave, Onesimus, and I've kept him to help me in my needs as I'm an old man with chains on my hands and my feet. But without your consent, he said, I didn't want to do anything so that your, any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. It's one reason I don't preach tithing. Are you kidding? No, I don't. God doesn't need your money. You think God needs your money? 
You know, one time I, I said that in a sermon, and I had a rich, rich family, and they never came back. And then I thought, Lord, why did I say that? God doesn't need your money. What does God want? He doesn't want your wallet. He wants your heart. Because when God has your heart, He's got your wallet. And God wants you to give because you want to give. You know, God loves a cheerful giver. And the Greek word is the word we get the word hilarious from. Oh, it's so much fun to give money away. It actually is. It's, it's a gift to be able to give money away. So he says, I, I want this to be spontaneous and not forced. And then he says something else. Verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. Verse 16. Now this is the crunch. Here it is. The New Testament contains within it the death of slavery. I want to say that again. Slavery was tolerated under the Old Testament and regulated under the Old Testament to temper the cruelty of slavery with other nations. But it's not unlike divorce, where the Pharisees are questioning Jesus about divorce, and they say, why did Moses uh, com command us to give a letter? And he said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. He said, because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning it was not so. There was no divorce in Eden. And there was no slavery in Eden. The model of a Christian society is the Garden of Eden. But under the Old Testament law, things were regulated so that the hardness of people's hearts would be tempered so as not to be as cruel as they would be without that. But notice what he's saying. No longer, verse 16, as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Now I want you to reflect on that for a moment. Slavery comes to an end in the Christian church. And then, sadly, as the Christian church became corrupted under Constantine and under others, that institution begins to come back in play. And why? what is the root of slavery? It's greed. It is always greed. It's about taking a man's labor without paying for it. It's theft. And you know that man-stealing under the Old Testament is a death penalty offense. It was a death penalty offense, man-stealing. But this is what we see in verse 16. I want you to take him back. Got to remember what's motivating Paul is the gospel. It's that Paul is Christ's slave. And Onesimus has now become Christ's slave. Because whether you like it or not, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are slaves. We are slaves. We're slaves. But we're the freest of all slaves. It's a joyful slavery, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, he says, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Wow. Now, now notice how he goes on further in the next sentence. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Now look at verse 17. How do you, how do you take this man and put him back into slavery? 
That's not what Paul is sending back. Paul is not sending back a slave to his master. He's sending a brother back to his brother. And he says in verse 17, So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Wow! And that's something? Cancel his debts. You know, you paid money for him. Cancel that debt. Charge it to me. Now, was Paul a super rich man? I don't know. He obviously had some money. And that's why those Roman governors of, uh, of Judea used to keep him in prison because they kept hoping, Felix and Festus were hoping, that he'd give them some money. They were, like all politicians, well, I shouldn't say all, like most politicians, they had itchy palms, and they wanted reimbursement. You know, in most countries, you have to tip politicians. You have to tip the police. Every time I've gone into Mexico, I've carried a $20 bill. It probably needs to be a 50 today. I put it in my palm, and as I'm going through their entrance situation, I'd always shake hands, and I mastered the art of not letting it fall out, and shaking hands. And they accepted it because in other countries, just like the waitress or waiter who waits on you expects a tip, so police officials in other countries expect a tip. It's the way of life in other countries. Now, what he's saying here is, if you consider me a partner, he says in verse 17, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, Charge it to me. Charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Now, here's another kicker. Philemon, you were on your way to a burning hell. You were going to burn in hell forever. And you're not burning in hell forever. You are going to go to heaven. And he says... Not to mention that you owe me your very self. See what he's saying? You're going to go to heaven instead of going to hell because God used me, the Apostle Paul, to win you to Christ and set you free from the bondage of sin and slavery to sin so you would be a free man in Christ. Verse 20, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, Paul was a manipulative man. So was the Lord Jesus Christ. There's good manipulation and bad manipulation. You remember my uncle Vito Corleone. Uh, he, he, knew how, he was a manipulator, and he knew how to make an offer that people would not refuse. Make an offer that they would not refuse. Evil manipulation is when you use emotions and arguments to try to get somebody to do wickedness. That's evil and wicked. It's like bribing a politician to do evil. But there's nothing wrong with bribing a politician to do good. Is there such a thing as godly bribery? Read the book of Proverbs. Read Ecclesiastes. It's very plain that a gift opens a door for people. There's nothing wrong with bribing a politician to do good. There's everything wrong with bribing a politician to do evil. So, 
Is it legitimate to give a campaign contribution? What is that but bribery, after all? Is it legitimate to give a campaign contribution to try to prevail on a political leader to do what's right? Now, you don't do that with policemen in this country. But, but you see what he's doing. There's a manipulation that's godly. And what am I doing when I'm in the pulpit? You think I'm just sitting up here teaching you? No, no, no. I'm trying to take the truth as it's revealed in God's Word and manipulate you, appealing to reason, appealing to your emotions, appealing to other things, your sense of guilt, your sense of peace, and using that to persuade you to do what you ought to do. A preacher who is not a manipulator is just a boring teacher. As in, super boring. What did he say? He woke me up. So, he's saying, look at verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Now, I'll ask you a question. Can you see in this letter of Paul to Philemon that he is manipulating him to free his former slave and take him into the house as his brother? Have you ever thought about this truth? That people who have been held in bondage, when they become believers, should be welcomed into the house as brothers and sisters. Think about it for a moment. And I've got to say something while we're on this subject, and I don't know if I'll go with it again next week or not, because this whole subject demands a, a, a thorough look at the Old Testament and a thorough look at things in the New Testament. But I want you to think of one thing. My uncle, not my great-uncle, finished the Citadel in 1898. You remember the Citadel? It was the Citadel cadets, led by a Louisiana general, that fired on Fort Sumter. So my uncle finished the Citadel in 1898. Now you think about it. That's not so far after the beginning of the war between the states. I was raised by people. I was the baby in both families. And notice I said my uncle finished the Citadel because nobody in the class of 1898 graduated. Why? Because two cadets who were seniors climbed out the window and went to a dance, and then they got caught by a junior classman who reported them, and they were expelled from the Citadel two weeks before graduation. Now, back then, people thought of honor and the Corps of Cadets and a camaraderie. And do you know what the entire class of 1898 did? They walked out and refused to accept their diplomas. The entire class of 1898 of the Citadel walked out and refused to accept their, their diplomas. However, what is that that people love so much? What is it that is the root of every kind of evil? The love of money. All of those people were included in the Alumni Association. And I got to eat dinner with General Mark Clark, the conqueror of Italy and Sicily, 
because he was the president of the citadel, the commandant, and I got to eat at the table with him and my uncle Henry and my aunt Inez and my mother and father because my brother was a freshman in 1957. That was a momentous event. It's the first time I ever had a drink of coffee. And so anyhow, think about that for a moment. The world that I grew up in was a world that, that believed in a mythology that's greater than any kind of Disney fantasy you can imagine. They all believed the fantasy. They thought the greatest movie in the world was Gone with the Wind. I've got to tell you something. Because I grew up in that world. And I saw the things. I, my first job was working at Chapin Shell Service Gas Station, 1961, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We had a men's bathroom, we had a women's bathroom, and then we had a bathroom that said colored. Nobody ever cleaned it after our one black employee quit. It was nasty. What do you think would have happened in 1961, a hundred years after the beginning of the Civil War, had an African-American person attempted to use the white restroom? They would have been arrested. You think I'm kidding? That's the world I grew up in. I remember going to Sears Roebuck in Florence, South Carolina. Myrtle Beach didn't have a Sears Roebuck. And there they had two water fountains, white only and colored. And the colored water fountain was not cooled. It was just tap water, whereas the whites got cold water. That's the world I grew up in. There was no place for African Americans to spend the night. They had a book called the Green Book where they could, were told where they could stop and spend the night. What I want to say to you is this. There's a myth, and my ancestors believed it, that essentially African Americans were very happy with all of this. Someone even wrote, Slavery produced in the South a genuine affection between the races that we believe we can say has never existed in any nation before the war of sin or since. And he says, there has never been a multiracial society which has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world. And he goes on and, and says more things. He said, slave life was to the slaves a life of plenty, of simple pleasures, of food, clothes, and good medical care. In spite of the evils contained in the system, we cannot overlook the benefits of slavery for both blacks and whites. I think he had to be on more than marijuana when he wrote that. Maybe he'd taken LSD. Maybe he'd used mushrooms. But I'm telling you, that is utter nonsense! What was slave life, life like? in the Old South. And I have to say this as a Southern man, born and raised in South Carolina, and all my ancestors on Mama's side and Daddy's side owned slaves. They adopted this. They believed it. Why? Because I can tell you this, people did not learn the truth from black friends. i tell you that growing up. I remember when I worked as a desk clerk at a hotel my junior year in high school. 
And uh, one day, because we had a lot of people from Canada who liked to go to Myrtle Beach to play golf, we had some people come. And so I went to, uh, I locked the office, and I went with our, with our uh, bellhop, Charles Chester, and I walked with him and helped with the bags. And while I'm there, he did this little dance and all this jiving and whatnot. And we got back to the office, he realized I'd noticed him. And he was humiliated that I'd seen that. And he said, you think I like acting like a fool? i got to feed my family. And the more I do that jive and acting like that, the bigger the tip I get and I can take care of my children. The fundamental problem for white folks, I say that as a white folk, as one, is we don't really know black folks. We've never created a relationship between them and us to the point they feel comfortable telling us the truth because of fear, because of the consequences of telling people what they really think. I'll close with one story. Daddy's sister, for whom I'm grateful, she died at 102 and a half and left me enough money to have a home of my own or I'd probably be on the streets with the $10,000 salary I had and a church house to live in for free. I remember seeing my Aunt Inez when she was 90 years old. And her whole, my whole life, I remember a male servant she had by the name of James King. And so uh, he was always there. He had worked for her husband, and he'd worked for her after her husband died on December uh, 24th. 1957, and I'd always go see him, and there I was, I'd flown Daddy to South Carolina so that we could visit my Aunt Inez on her 90th birthday, Daddy was 80, and I'd noticed James King, and I went in to talk to my aunt, and I said, Inez, she didn't like to be called Aunt Inez, she was sensitive to children, and she said, it's hard for little children to say Aunt Inez. So she always wanted to call her Inez. Inez, I noticed James's eye, it looked like he has cataracts. And this statement always struck me. I don't know, Robert. I was always told never to look a nigra in the eyes. Let that sink in for a moment. That's the polite in word. I was always told never to look a nigra in the eyes. I'm looking in your eyes. You know why? Because I can see who you really are. And when you look in my eyes, you can see who I really am. But when you don't look somebody in the eyes, you don't know who they really are. You don't know what they're really feeling inside. Because the eyes are the window of the soul. And it was always the way. You don't look each other in the eye. Wow. 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 I grew up in a world of mythology thinking everybody was so happy till I met Charles King, Charles Chester, and he educated me about what black folks really feel. I grew up in a fool's paradise. All white schools, even the college I went to was segregated. The orphanage my wife and I worked at after we were married, which was sponsored by the Presbyterian Church, the synods of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina, would not allow black children there. 
or illegitimate children for that matter. Great compassion. What am I saying to say this about slavery? Slavery, as it was practiced in the United States, was a very wicked system where it was criminal to teach a slave to read and write. What? In Rome, slaves were educated and often used to teach children in the home. So where does that leave us as a church? It says, it's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I need prayer. And the attitudes that were steeped in my soul as a little boy, I still struggle with those attitudes. What kind of attitudes am I talking about? I struggle with racism. Are you serious? Yeah. I know it's wicked, but it's still in me. Would to God he'd purge it all out. And so my appeal to you here today, as we celebrate the 60th anniversary of this church, is to reach out and get to know your neighbors and invite your neighbors to come to church. Get to know them. Look them in the eye. Shake their hands. My wife and I had the most wonderful blessing Tuesday evening when we got home from Texarkana, and I I will close with this one. We had our neighbors. They were living together in our neighborhood, and we realized that they uh, had decided to get married. And so what did we do? I know this is not a Baptist thing to do. Uh, We took a bottle of wine, We put it in a gift bag, we wrote a note on it, and we said, congratulations on your marriage, Bob and Sandy Vincent, your neighbors down at the end of the street. And we hid it on their porch behind some plants, and they found it. And so we got to know them. And the more we knew them, the more they opened up to us and told us things. And um, so about a year ago, we realized they'd been trying to have a baby and they couldn't get pregnant. And we prayed. Whenever we were walking, we would stop and they were out on the porch and say hello. And sometimes we would pray with them, but we always prayed for them when we walked past or drove past their house. Tuesday, I'm relaxing. And I hear this on our door. And it was our neighbors. And they said, we just told our parents, and we wanted to tell you all, his wife was pregnant. Now, what am I saying that for? Now, there are people that look like me. They're white people. But the point is, you've got needy neighbors. The key to this church surviving is needy neighbors who know you love them, whether they're red, yellow, black, or white is reach out to know your neighbors. Share Jesus with your neighbors. You know, it is so easy to share Jesus with your neighbors when you love Jesus and you love people and you want them to be helped. You open up and you share with them your heart. And the thing that I've never had but about four times in my life ever had somebody refuse is this, can I pray for you? Only a handful of people my whole life have ever said, no, I'd rather you wouldn't. Okay. Most everybody will say yes. When we stay in the Hampton, we ask the desk clerks if they have a need we can pray for. That's what we do. 
Would you get in the habit of sharing Jesus with your neighbors, whether they're black or white or Native American or Asian? Share Jesus with your neighbors. And I want to say, as God is my witness, may he strike me dead if this doesn't happen. Your neighbor, whether black or white, Asian or Native American, will be welcomed in this church and embraced with open arms. May we pray. Lord, bless us as we think about the legacy of a very destructive system that destroyed the family, that separated husbands and wives, that did not recognize marriages between slaves, unlike other civilizations, did not allow slaves to learn to read or write, that it was a criminal offense. Lord, the legacy of that is still with us today. And grant, O oh God, we pray, that we may overcome that in one-on-one -on -one relationships with the people around us as you bring them across our path. For Jesus' sake, amen. Our closing hymn...